Probably should have got this on beforehand, but while I'm getting it on, let me just say hello. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I always look forward to coming down and see you all. It's a, it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's an honor to be able to be with you. I'm looking forward to the meeting. I think that's on. It's on the on switch, but there's no light. Is that okay? There's no light on? Huh? All the way, okay, I'm all the way to the left. You want me to put a battery in it? Oh, one of those uh, rechargeable ones there? Well, yeah, that would do it. So here in a few weeks, I'll be back down here to um, have, you know, do a series of lessons with you. I, I think I, I kind of decided, if it's all right with you all, I'll let you know what I want to speak about. Is that okay? Um, I have been studying about the attributes of God, and uh, that sounds kind of... I don't know, maybe kind of routine, but it's been anything but routine. Uh, I have been coming to the realization that we may worship God the way he wants us to, but the question is, who are we worshiping? And coming to know who God is is such an important thing. It's what all of humanity needs. And so I've been basically preaching those back home now since about the second or third week of January. So I'm going to pick five or so of those and bring them for you all. And I hope they'll be profitable to you. They've been very very profitable for me, and uh, they have been very profitable for the members there at Central as well. So we would look at things like, today I preached about the faithfulness of God, or maybe the foreknowledge of God. I'll, I'll pick five that go together. I think it's five lessons, right? I think I'm here for five lessons. I'll pick five that go very nicely. So it'll be a really good opportunity to invite someone who is not very familiar with God. They'll get to know God. And if you're uh, a child of God who's been worshiping God for any period of time, maybe even decades, You'll get to know God even better by understanding what the scriptures teaches us about who he is and, and, and what he is. And so it's, it'll be a good series. I'm really looking forward to that. And, and time will fly until we're together uh, to do that. But tonight, we are going to talk about the call from without. And it was interesting because this is actually a lesson that I preached in 2020, I think July or June or something like that. And I started the lesson like this. What strange times we are living in. And now with hindsight, looking back, it's only gotten stranger since 2020. And, and, and what's been interesting is since then, I had people then asking me, and since then I've had more people ask, are we living in the end times? Is, is this Armageddon? With all the stuff that's been going on in the world, I've been asked so many times, is the Lord about to return? In fact, yesterday I got a phone call from an old friend He's a, he's a Mormon up in Georgetown. We've had many, many studies over the years. Uh, we've, we've stayed friends, even though we completely disagree on so many things. But he called me to invite me to a series of lectures in Lexington yesterday with a prophet who had been visited by God to bring a message. And I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm just saying I, I have to smile a little bit because this is not the first time this has happened to me. And, and he wanted me to come and hear this, this prophet speak and I told him I couldn't. I was going out of town. And he says, well, do you have any questions for the prophet? And I'm like, oh, boy, do I ever. And, and he said, well, just text them to me. And I'll ask him. And I, I didn't. I forgot to text him. But, but so many people are concerned about these things. And my answer when somebody says, is this the end times? You know what my answer is? Yes. Yes, it is. This is the end times. It's been that way for a couple millennia. We have been living in the last days. No, it's not Armageddon. Forget the movies. Forget the false doctrines of, of the premillennialists and things such as that. And perhaps, yes, the Lord may be here at any moment. And so the, the question is, are you ready for that? 
But as far as things in our times being strange, as that as far as that goes, I prefer to think about the fact that we live in a fallen, corrupt world due to sin, the sin of humanity, going all back all the way back to Genesis chapter three. A very good creation was defiled by the wicked choice of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, our first original parents, as we might call them. Sin resulted in humanity's separation from a loving deity. Separated from God means being separated from his blessings, his glory, his, his loving providence, his security. It means being utterly lost. And this is where humanity finds itself today, hopeless and bleak without the Lord. So without, if one would, would turn to themselves and, and look to Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, then all would, be, all would be fine. But so many haven't. The Lord has rescued us from sin and death. And we know this. This is in almost every lesson you hear. We understand this. His great sacrifice on the cross has made it possible for all humanity to be restored to that pre-sin Garden of Eden state of security. And God is good to do that. I think we would all agree. But so many in our world, so many in our community, so many in our lives are not in that safe, secure, saved relationship. Tragic indeed, isn't it? Perhaps you're thinking about somebody right now who fits that description. And I want you to focus on that person and stay focused on that person through this entire lesson. Because they need this lesson as much as you do. So I want to talk about the lostness of the lost. The question is, uh, the lost are really lost. They really, truly are lost. They are not just are they're going to be lost one day, but they are lost now. They are scared, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're resentful, they're bitter. You have to understand that this is not God's plan at all. He wants every single person from Somerset, Kentucky, to Kiev, Ukraine, to Guangdong province in China to come to know him and be blessed by his own hand. He doesn't want a single person to be lost. He doesn't want a single person to be scared uh, or anxious. The Lord desires for all of humanity to live lives of purpose and lives of peace. He desires everyone to look, to look fear and doubt in the proverbial eyes and to be able to say honestly in their hearts, God has got this. He stands constantly ready to welcome all believers into a safe, secure, blessed relationship with him and all of his people. This is what the Lord wants. The mistake many make today is that they call on the Lord to meet them on their terms. You hear people talk about it all the time. Call on the Lord. I call on the Lord. How presumptuous of the fallen creation to expect the faithful creator God to meet them on their terms. My friends, the Lord is the faithful one who hasn't violated the covenant. His righteousness demands that we meet him on his terms, not ours. You know, the amazing grace of God makes that completely possible. But, but do lost people, do lost people in the world know those terms? Do they know where to find those terms that we, we must meet to meet the Lord on his terms? The answer is no, usually they don't. They usually don't. They may desire salvation. This is in my experience as I've talked to people. They even look for salvation or something spiritual. But too often they fail to truly find it. 
They truly, they fail to find true, full, free salvation in Jesus on his terms due to the abundance of confusion in the secular and religious worlds. So many times, I recall when I first preached this lesson a couple years ago, I had been approached by an older gentleman at the time he was 71 in my martial arts class, and he's a black belt, and you don't mess with him. His name's Floyd, but he pulled me aside in the parking lot and says, Jim, I, I just don't know what to make heads or tails of all of this. And he was talking about what was going on in the world and spiritual stuff, and he's, his, his, basically his position, he was, re, he was spiritual but not religious, more or less. And I find this to be common. Due to disagreements and doubts and debates and disinformation, it makes it so hard to find, though it's hidden in plain sight, isn't it? It's right in front of most people. There's a quote from Henry David Thoreau. It's, it's famous. It's, it's found in Walden, uh, Walden Pond. And, and the quote is that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. He thinks misplaced value is the cause. If, if you study Thoreau, all right, the, we feel a void in our lives and we attempt to feel it with, fill it with things like, uh, I don't know, money and possessions and uh, honors and accolades and stuff like that. We think these things will make us happy when they don't. And when they don't do that, we just seek more of them. Quiet desperation, then, is acceptance of and surrendering to circumstances. Quietly desperate lives are really frustrated, passive, and apathetic. They are unfulfilled and unrealized. They are just like a drowning person. Now, this seems kind of a weird thing to bring up a sermon, but I want you to think about this. What do you imagine a drowning man or woman, a drowning person, to sound like? Now think about, I don't know, maybe a movie or something you've seen or whatnot. Do you imagine a, a drowning person to sound like what came from behind this curtain a few minutes ago? Water splashing and, and help, help, gurgling. Is that, what, is that what you imagine a drowning person? Loud, arms flailing, screams for help. If you thought you could hear if a loved one was drowning, you would be sorely mistaken. The reality is that someone could be drowning just a few feet away from you and you wouldn't know it because drowning is often silent. Did you know that? In fact, to confirm this, Shelley Dalk, who is the director of swimming and water safety programs for the Canadian Red Cross, she says when people are drowning, all of their energy is going into trying to breathe and staying above water. They are not yelling for help or waving their hands around. Drowning is often very silent. In fact, I remember years ago, I was a little boy, a little fat kid at 4-H camp, and we were in the pool for some activity we had to do. I was really young, and I didn't want to, and I, I had double Charlie horses in my hamstrings, and I was in about six feet of water, and I was about five foot tall. Nobody heard me yell for a thing, and I just remember slipping under the water. I remember hitting the bottom of my feet and bouncing up enough that flubber floats that I floated towards the wall, and I was okay. But there was no yells. I didn't even have the energy or the time to scream for help. Most people who drown quietly slip right under the waves and perish without a sound. Isn't that kind of disturbing? 
So what's my point? My point is this. This is how many people are today. This is how many people are today in, in, in our world, in our communities. People feel like they're drowning in fear, they're drowning in stress, they're drowning in anxiety and trauma and depression and death, yet their voices are, well, they're largely unheard. Is that something I need to fix? So if I pull it out and let it dangle, we'd be all right? All right, we'll try that. It's usually the technology that gets me. But my friends, this, this is the reality of things. People are, are drowning in these, these conditions, and their voices are largely unheard. This, my brethren, is the call of the lost of this world. This is what I want us to think about. And Jesus has the remedy for all that ails them. We have the responsibility. As God's people, we have the responsibility to hear them and to help them find their way to the Lord. Now, unless you think I'm being a little bit melodramatic or something like that, I want you to consider this situation a little bit further. As the creation, us, as the creation, we are made in the image of God. We are made as his image bearers. The Hebrew word, I remember last time I was here, I gave you a lot of Hebrew. I'm only going to give you one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that we find back in Genesis chapter 1 is selim, T-S-E-L-E-M, selim. And this Hebrew word is translated as image. It's, it, it's a means, uh, it means a representative figure. It's commonly used in scripture to refer to what we would call idols, statues, idols, carved and created by men for vain worship. That doesn't mean we are idols or anything like that, but what we need to realize is that every human being is a small representative of the greater reality. We are his image bearers. So we need to realize that this is that in every human being who has ever lived. Now, listen to me. Every human being who has ever lived and who will ever live, every single one of them is a direct. There is a direct resemblance and connection to the Lord. It's weird to think about, isn't it? To be the image bearer is to be human. Every single human, good, bad, indifferent, is an image bearer of God. Now, whether or not we're bearing his image, we are representing and reigning and ruling the way we're supposed to, that's a, that's a whole different question. But every single person in them is a direct resemblance to God and a connection to him. I like to think of it as a, as a God-shaped hole. That's the way I, I first came to think of it. Everybody has a God-shaped hole in, in their heart that can only be filled by him. Remember those kids' toys where you have a square peg and a square hole and a triangle peg and a triangle we have a God-shaped hole, and only God can fill it. it. It's why humanity, for all of time, has sought something greater than themselves. It's really interesting when you study human history and, 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 and socially, sociology studies and stuff. All humanity, for all time, has sought something greater than themselves. It's because we are hardwired to God. Over in Acts chapter 17, if you would like to turn with me uh, in, in, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, let's read verses 22 and following. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Everybody is hardwired to God. And when a person is separated from the Lord, they can actually feel it. That void is present in every person's life. Though they may ignore it or misinterpret it, it is there within the heart of each individual in the world. It's a longing that only Christ, that only God can satisfy. If you would turn to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, look at verses 13 and 14. Speaking to the woman here at the well, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Speaking of the water that's in that well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Everybody has that longing. They just don't understand it. They don't realize what they actually really need. In fact, if you went just a couple chapters over to John chapter 6 and verse 35, notice what he says here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why does Jesus use thirsting and hungering imagery to explain the needs of humanity, spiritually speaking? This is what humanity needs, whether they realize it or not. In Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, you know this passage. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what every person on this planet needs, whether they understand it or not. The mass of humanity does lead lives of quiet desperation, but their cries for salvation are thunderous. If we can just learn to hear the sounds of drowning men and women. We need to learn to hear that. Let me just kind of paint a snapshot of humanity, and perhaps you could add some things to this or or, or adjust it. But, But lost men and women call for help from every continent, Every nation, every county in this commonwealth, of course. It's reported that when when the French Revolution began, a person observed, this is a riot. Another person said, no, this is a revolution. Brothers and sisters, the world today is crying for help out of the hopelessness of world revolution. What I mean by that is a population revolution is taking place. You can read about this all, all around. There are 7.7 billion people in the world today. I think it's actually up to 7.8 now in just the past couple years. And this number is projected to be 8.6 billion in about eight more years. It's a lot of people. 
the earth can handle it. There's no way that humans can hurt this planet because God made it for us to be here. But, you know, we can abuse it. But with this rapid rise in population, there is a revolution among the peoples of the world that is issuing forth, but not in love and peace and harmony and turning to God, but in violence and hostility. I mean, as a wall of communism crumbles in one place, a wall of totalitarianism is erected in another. Violence is now the pattern, or at least the passive-aggressive threat for international relationships. We've seen that escalate. This violent revolution is shaking every continent and every nation. There is actually also a family revolution going on. We are seeing the disintegration. Uh, dis- Integration, disintegration. I'll get that word out here in a second. Disintegrate, right? The, the, the dissolving of the American family. With one out of two marriages ending in divorce. 50%. Now, this number actually, just so you know, hasn't fluctuated very much in the recent decades, uh, but that's because there are 7.5 million unmarried couples living together. So divorce rates are staying the same, but unmarried people living together is going up. The situation is not good. The, the, The American family, the core unit, the family period, American or whatever type, whatever variety, the family is disintegrating. Going up to 7.5 million unmarried couples living together, that's a whopping 138% increase since just 1990. And it's a 13% increase in the past 12 years. If you add to that, the 42% of these households have children, and you see the growing problem. So there aren't more divorces because there's more fornication, and there's more lasciviousness. As far as sexual sins go, with the great increase of mobile technology, many have turned to pornography. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Just 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe porn is wrong. Teens and young adults ages 13 through 24 believe not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. You see the problem in our world today. We turn our attention to the church. Dead and dying churches are becoming the norm. Ritual and programs have become the end in themselves. In fact, the greatest mission field in America today may well be within the church. Business as usual won't cut it anymore. Evangelism is not debatable. And then we think about how we've been living through a massive psychological experiment designed as a, disguised as a health and social pandemic that has at its root fear and anxiety. People have been scared to move and scared to breathe. We've been seeing the, st- uh, the start of, of likely economic recession. Such instability and turmoil in this world can be frightening. Do you all remember the threat of World War III with Iran in January of 2020? You remember, that wasn't that far away that long ago. Now it's over in Eastern Europe. But this is what I want you to see. Today, people live with stress. They live with sadness. They live with depression. And they live with discouragement, anxiety, and anger, tension, and trauma as a normal part of their lives. It's not supposed to be this way. Think back to the garden. And only Jesus can redeem us to that place of peace and salvation. 
if we can learn to hear the call of the lost, the call from without, we will be doing our part as God's imagers. That's what we're here to do. So how do we hear the call from without? I'm going to suggest that we prepare to hear. Just like a lifeguard learns to see and observe the signs of a silently drowning child in the pool, we need to learn and prepare to hear. Let me give you the example of Paul. He was moving in the will of God. He was committed to doing God's will. In Acts chapter 13, in verse 46, he announced that he was going to turn his preaching to the Gentiles. Let's read that together. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, speaking to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And he never looked back. He never wavered in that assignment. His confidence in that task was clear. Look at chapter 28 of the book of Acts. Turn over here. Acts 28 and verse 26. Here we read. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul knew that Paul knew God's will, what it was for his life, right? God, Paul knew that, and, and without wavering, he moved ever forward in that will, doing what God had instructed him to do. Brothers and sisters, prepare yourself today to move when and where the Lord asks you to move. It's always surprising to me how sedentary and immobile God's people are when God pushes and prods. Now, I'm not judging anybody here. I've been that person myself. But you have to prepare yourselves today to move when God moves you, when God nudges, when God goads, when God prods. You have to move. You have to move when and where the Lord asks you to move. So take the time now to familiarize yourself with Scripture. This is a time of preparation. Study the Word of God and prepare yourself by studying the gospel message so that you're ready when that call comes. You don't know when that's going to come. Train yourself to give an answer for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Again, I wouldn't put anybody here to the test, but back home I did that. Not in the pulpit, of course, but afterwards I put some people to the test in a loving way. So it's shocking. It's shocking how unprepared Christians are to give an answer for the hope that is in them with meekness and fear. How can we help a drowning person if we can't even put into words ourselves our hope? Prepare your mind. Prepare your heart to be open and vulnerable to those who are in need. And be generous with your resources, whether that's time or money or effort or whatever. Prepare yourself to hear. Train yourself for service, and then the Lord will use you. Secondly, we can look and listen. With my understanding of lifeguard training is, again, they don't, they don't listen for drowning people. They watch for drowning people. Rarely will a lost soul, uh, lost soul shout out, help me, help me, I'm, I'm lost without Jesus, I'm dying in my sin, would somebody please teach me the gospel? I've never had one lost soul do that, not one. 
I've never had a lost soul walk up and say, I am dying without Jesus. Can you please teach me the gospel? Now, I've had people come up and ask me questions that leads to that, but do you remember the sound of a drowning man? Most likely, the call will be visible before and if ever it is audible. So what would that look like? Well, it might look like somebody struggling with depression and anxiety. It's unbelievable how many people struggle with that. It might look like somebody battling an addiction. And it doesn't have to be the bad drugs. It can be all kinds of things somebody's addicted to. It could look like somebody engulfed in bitterness and anger issues. I've seen it look like somebody lying, dying in a hospital bed. I've had it look like somebody ridiculing my faith in Jesus Christ. That was a call for help. See, hurting people are really just drowning people calling out in their way. So those with vision will learn to hear. The call comes, but it's only heard by those with listening ears and willing hearts. This means when someone is hurting and somebody's hurting you, you take the pain and you offer them love. That's what that means. This means when you hear someone spout out denial in God, you resist getting defensive and prepare to give your sincere testimony. It means that you realize that there is a wrong way to say the right thing and you use wisdom to select your words and actions in a way that brings glory to God and not to you. We look and we listen and then we heed the call. We heed the call. Brothers and sisters, obedience is the response of a prepared and willing heart and is what is required by God. If you wanted to let your mind drift back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's the story when Samuel was a little boy being raised by Eli and, and he's in the house and and God spoke to young Samuel. He calls out to him in the night, and several times Samuel comes running and says, Eli, did you call me? And they went back and forth, and finally Eli says, it's God. The next time he calls out, you say, your servant is listening, so speak. And that's exactly what he does. His response to that call was, speak, for thy servant hears. The use of the, the word servant reflects obedience, doesn't it? It was as if he was saying, yes, Lord, here I am. Now what's the command? That type of obedience is essential if we are to hear God's call and the call of a drowning, lost person. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I hear. I'm ready to move. When the Lord puts somebody, a situation in your path to deal with and help that person... We have to be willing to step out and help that person, to, to, to heed the call. You know, Paul was in prayer when the vision and the Macedonian call came. He was seeking direction and making himself available to God. Now, I'm not saying that's how it's going to come for you. I, I, I'm not saying that at all. He was willing to obey without knowing the course or knowing the cost of that obedience. Brothers and sisters, we're expected to do the same. The one who hears the call, the one who sees the vision, must first hear God's call and make himself available. It, it is the committed and faithful follower whom God gives the assignment, if you will. 
Paul and, and Samuel, they were obedient and they were prayerful. Thus, they were prepared to hear God's call. My question is, are you? Are you prepared to, to be used by God to help a lost and dying person, someone drowning? Or are you just playing church? Are you comfortable to come here, sit here, get a little pat on your back, feel good, drop a check in, take a communion, go home, right? If that's all you're doing, you need to do a check. Once we hear God's call, and, and if you train yourself and you do it enough, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you see that opportunity, call it providence, whatever, the hand of God, there is a person right there. There's a situation right there. You did nothing to generate it. All of a sudden, boom, it's God thing. Here it is. You know it when you see it. If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the call to preach the good news to the lost. Preach the gospel is one word in the Greek literally meaning to evangelize. Euangelion. The gospel is revealed to us in the word of God. The Bible speaks not only of the content of what is preached, but also of the act and the process and the execution of the proclamation. You've had plenty of lessons on evangelism. Content and process of preaching are one. We must not separate them. The preaching of this gospel is charged with power. You know the passage in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Let's turn over and read that one together. I don't have that one on the wall, but I'll just read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is the gospel? I know this is basic, but let's review it very quickly. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God has acted for the salvation of the world in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, Messiah, became sin for us, dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. He rose bodily and victoriously from the grave, ascended to heaven, and will one day return for his own to establish, to, uh, excuse me, to return the kingdom back to God, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says. Each individual must turn from his or her sins and by faith trust him as Lord and Savior and die with him in baptism. This is the gospel. And when one dies with him in the water grave of baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection, it's a reenactment of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the gospel. And this is the answer to the call of the lost. There's a fellow named Robert Spear. It's not the same one who preached in Winchester for a number of years, but uh, he was a missionary, and I've read very little about him, so I don't, I don't know much about his religious positions on stuff. Don't ask me. I don't know. But I like this quote. He once said, You say you have faith. Well, then either get it, give it out or give it up. I like that. Here's one who took himself and answered the call and went to where the work was, wherever. I don't even know where his missionary field was. I don't know. I don't know if it was Africa or Eastern Kentucky. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Faith is personal, but it's never private. We sing little songs like this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. Your faith is personal, but it's never private. Charles Spurgeon a lot of us have heard of him, Baptist preacher. 
He's got a lot of good quotes, a lot of good thoughts, even though he's wrong on some issues. He, he was once asked by somebody, do you believe the heathen who have never heard the gospel are really lost? And his reply, a little bit, little bit smart alecky, but good. He says, do you believe the ones who have heard the gospel and never shared it are really saved? And I don't know where he was going with that thought, but I think that works for our conversation, our study this evening. We need to heed the call. That begins by preparing ourselves and learning to look and listen and then step out in faith and act and share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the cries of a lost world all around us resounding with a deafening, thunderous roar. Though a drowning man is often silent, never has there been so much, at least in my lifetime, so much devastation in the hearts of individuals as there is today. That's just my observation. Never have so many enjoyed so much of the things of this world, yet the despair and the hopelessness in the human heart, it just seems greater than ever before. And maybe I'm, again, maybe I'm, I'm not perceiving it right. God is good. Sun is shining. We're very blessed. But the lostness of mankind clamors for our attention today. There are lost people all around. I asked you in the beginning to, to think about somebody in your life that you know who is lost. Have you been thinking about that person? You know, if you'll think about that person and understand this is a person who is drowning, spiritually speaking, maybe you'll be a little bit more motivated to try to help them find their footing, find their way. I think the key is leadership. Leadership is the key. What I mean, there is a worldwide lack of people truly called of God, who are willing to suffer scorn, willing to suffer poverty, and the shame of the cross for the sake of Christ and the lost people of this world. I am not, again, I'm not judging. I'm just saying we often find it so easy to live our comfortable, blessed, provided for lives. And when we have those opportunities, I'm not comfortable with that. It's just kind of out of my comfort zone to to go talk to that person. Okay, maybe I'll drop a dollar in their cup if they're panhandling, but you know, to really sit down and share a meal and try to bring that person to Christ, that's hard. That's uncomfortable. And there's just not a lot of, there's just not enough people, Christians, who are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. We need to learn to hear the call of the lost world. They're crying all the time, come over, help us. All the time, wherever that is. It might be just next door, it might be down the street, it might be across the world. We need to learn to hear the call from without at whatever cost we may incur to do so. That's what we accepted to do when we became disciples. Our Savior was willing to do that for us. The question is, are you willing to do that for him? Are you willing to do that for others? Are you willing to do it for that one person that you've had in your mind through this lesson? What are you willing to do for the Lord, for the cause of the kingdom? It's been my experience that if you're willing and you ask for opportunities, you better get ready because the Lord will provide it. If you want opportunities to serve in the kingdom and, and to help save a lost soul, if you pray for it, it's been always, always been my experience. If I've prayed for an opportunity, the Lord always provides it. Always. 
But it does begin with bringing your broken life to Christ, if that is your situation today. We're going to sing that hymn now, Bring Christ Your Broken Life. You can't help somebody else be fixed if you're not fixed yourself. And you can't fix yourself. The Lord, the great physician, can. If we bring our broken lives to Christ, he will, he will mend us and make us whole. And that, that takes place when we come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, 28, he says, I shed my blood for the remission of sins. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So it's in the waters of baptism we contact the blood of Christ, the saving blood. And when we bring our broken lives to Christ, we are, we are fixed. We are changed. We are made better. We are made whole. And then we can turn and help others do the same. It begins with you. If you need to respond to the gospel's invitation, you have an opportunity. If you need to respond, once you make your way down to the front, let us know how we can help us together we stand to sing.